You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. So the title of this morning's message is Confidence in God, Confidence in God, and our text is Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, Confidence in God, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, and I'd like to set up for you the text before we read it. Can I do that? Just to give you some context. First of all, I trust there are those of you here that are exploring Christianity, and so welcome, and what a, what a privilege it is for me to share the gospel with you, what it's all about. For those of you who are Christians, I realize that there are some that have been in the Lord for many years, and some that maybe perhaps just God just recently saved you. So this text that we're reading is actually part of a sermon. The book of Hebrews, the letter of Hebrews, was written really... Theologians say it was probably a sermon that was meant to be preached at one time. And so Eric has actually allowed me to preach the entire book to you today. We'll be done by 3.30 or 4. <clears throat> and so, and it was, it was written or preached to Christians who came from the Jewish faith, thus the term Hebrews. Now, there were also Gentiles that would have read this, and we, most of us are Gentiles. We're benefiting from it. But it was written to Hebrew Christians in the first century who had somewhat lost their confidence or were losing their confidence in God because of trials and tribulations, because of difficulties, because of pressure against them in the world at that time. And so we can benefit from it today. We can benefit from it today. So as you listen to this text, I want you to realize this context. It's intended to increase your confidence in God if you've come here this morning with great confidence in God. Maybe you're doing well. Your confidence in God is just fine. This is intended to fortify your confidence. If you're here this morning and saying, you know, my confidence in God has been waning a little bit. You know, if I were to be honest with those around me, I'm kind of losing a little bit of my confidence in God. Great. This text is for you. And perhaps there's some of you and you're saying, I, I kind of have lost my confidence in God. I, I, I don't know. Do I trust him? Where is he? Oh, get ready for God to speak to you through his word and by his spirit to rebuild your confidence. And if you're not a Christian, I pray that at the end of the service today, you would become a Christian because God would change your heart by his spirit and you would have a new confidence in God that you'd never had before. All right, you ready? Let's read the text together. Hebrews chapter four, beginning in verse 14. Confidence in God. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. 
let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Here it is, verse 16. Here's the main point. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Lord, I pray you pour out your spirit upon me, anoint me to preach your word in power, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, anoint the ears of those who are listening to hear with faith. Lord Jesus, build your church and may the gates of hell not prevail against it. We pray these things. Oh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we pray these things as your people and all God's people said, amen. Amen. I began playing organized baseball at a very young age. I think it was around six. It may have been even earlier. So it goes for a young man who grew up in a Cuban family in Miami, Florida. Baseball was everything. And and I found out very quickly that I was really good at fielding. I have quick hands. I I could field the ball, played third base, and I was okay in hitting because I don't have great eyes, and to hit well, you have to have great eyes. And if you don't know baseball, baseball has, I think, one of the hardest things in the world to do in the world of sports. It's to hit this little baseball that is coming very fast from someone that's very close with this thin bat, and you're trying to hit this thing. And as a little kid, you're also thinking, is it going to hit me? So there's a little bit of fear factor involved there. But the key to hitting in baseball If you want to be a good hitter in baseball, you know what the key is? You know what the game changer is? Confidence. Hitting is a mind game. Hitting is about confidence. If you go to the plate, if one goes to the plate knowing that one is going to get a hit with tremendous confidence, the chances are you're going to get a hit. You're going to hang in there. You're going to see that ball better. You're going to have confidence. But if you approach the plate with zero confidence that you're going to get a hit, I guarantee you you're not going to get a hit. This text was written to people who approached the plate of faith with losing their confidence in God. Their confidence was dwindling. They were in a slump. They had started faith. They had started their walk with Christ with great confidence, but primarily because of pressures. Now, these pressures came through opposition from the world, because of their faith in Jesus. It came from temptations from within, from giving in to sin, and it came from the enemy of their soul, the classic three enemies of the Christian, the world, the flesh, and Satan. But the bottom line is they were losing their confidence. And so God, God gives them this word that they might grow in their confidence in Christ. And here it is. Here's the main point. Here's the big idea. Here's the thesis of our message this morning. This is God's word to you from this text. You ready? On the screen. Hold fast and draw near. Hold fast and draw near. All right, Al. Hold fast to what? Well, in point number one, we're going to talk about 
what we hold fast to. And we're going to talk about the one who holds fast to us so that we can hold fast to him. And if you're not a Christian, Christianity is not about me having a false confidence to approach God based on my good works or based on anything I can bring to God. It's Christianity, if you're not a Christian, is about God holding fast to me. That'll be point one. And then... Point two is going to answer the question, well, draw near to God. What does that look like, Al? What does it look like to draw near to God? And that's a great question, and that'll be point two of our text. Hold fast, draw near. Point one, hold fast to our confession of faith. Look at verse 14 again. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us... That's a command. Let us hold fast our confession. This phrase, hold fast, in verse 14, in the original language, it has a range of meaning. And that range of meaning includes holding on to our confidence in God. So when the author of Hebrews writes verse 14 or preached verse 14, and he said, let us hold fast our confession. What he's saying is, let us have confidence in God. This this confession is the confession about Jesus. The confession to which we hold is the confession of who Jesus is, who holds on to us. Well, where do you see that in the text? Look at verse 14 again. Since then, do you see those words? And then jump down to the end of the verse. Let us. Since then, let us. Since then, what? We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. Since then, we have this great high priest, and that is our confession of faith. Let us hold fast our confession. We have the gospel indicative. Since then, we have a great high priest. And then the gospel imperative, let us hold fast. You see, the book of Hebrews is about Jesus, the greater high priest. It was written to Christians who came from Judaism, who were used to earthly high priests. And the writer of Hebrews says, we have a greater high priest, and that is Jesus. This theme of a great high priest began in chapter 2. It was interrupted in chapter 3.13 through 4.13, and now in chapter 4.14, all the way through chapter 5, the author of Hebrews is going to develop this idea of a great high priest. See, Jesus is our great high priest based upon what? We'll look at verse 14 again on the screen. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. That phrase is indicating Jesus' ascension to the right hand of the throne of God. Why is Jesus a greater high priest than the high priest on earth? Because they are on earth. Jesus is in heaven. He's passed through the heavens. He has been glorified at the right hand of 
of God the Father. And again, if you're not a believer, this is now the, the doctrine of the Trinity comes into play. One God, three persons, God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, this great high priest, God the Holy Spirit, whom the Father and the Son sent. So Jesus is the greater high priest because he is in the heavens. He's passed through the heavens. This is speaking of his ascension. Since then we have this great high priest, let us hold on to our confession, which is Jesus, this great high priest. He's not only a great high priest because he's passed through the heavens, but he's the great high priest because he's the son of God. Of God. Back to verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. That's the ascension at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. Jesus has passed through the heavens. He's ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. Christian, Jesus is ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is interceding for you. Have confidence. And he's the Son of God. Jesus, the Son of God. Do you see that at the end of verse 14? Jesus, the Son of God. Why is Jesus a greater high priest? Because there's no high priest that's the Son of God other than Jesus. And again, if you're not a Christian, here is the Christian doctrine of the incarnation. God became a man, maintaining full deity, fully God. He's fully man. That's Jesus. He's the Son of God. That's why he's the greater high priest. That's why we can have confidence to come before God when our confidence wanes because of the temptations and trials of this world. Because when our confidence wanes because of the sin in our heart or the attack of the enemy, we have a great high priest who is above all of those enemies, who is seated at the right hand of the Father, who is the Son of God, who came to die for the sin that is sapping your confidence. Where's that? Well, we see that in verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Oh, friends, listen, have confidence because we have a high priest, look at verse 15, who is able to sympathize. We do not have a high priest who is at a distance and just simply rebukes us. We have a high priest who became man and was tempted as we are, yet without sin, who died for our sin, and he's able to sympathize with us. Do not allow your sin to sap your confidence because your confidence could never be in your righteousness. It must always be in Christ's righteousness. So when you sin, you run to Christ. There's your confidence. You see, verse 15 connects us with chapter 2, verses 17 to 18. This text in verse 15, keep that up on the screen for a moment, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, is where the author or the preacher picks back up a theme that he started in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. On the screen, Hebrews 2, 17 and 18. 
Therefore, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Isn't that amazing? He calls us brothers, brothers and sisters. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That word propitiation is a very profound word. I trust Eric and the team have explained that, but you may be brand new or not a Christian. The idea of propitiation is that God is righteous and just, and his love must include justice and righteousness. We are unjust. We are unrighteous. And we deserve God's wrath. It is a righteous wrath against evil. Propitiation is when someone comes and takes the wrath that I deserve. He propitiates it. He absorbs it. He satisfies God's righteous wrath and gives me favor. That's what our high priest came to do. Listen, if you're not a Christian, this is what makes Christianity unique, distinct, amazing. This is amazing grace. You want to know why they wrote amazing grace? Because of that truth. Verse 18, back to chapter 2, verse 18. For because he himself, Jesus, has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is why, back to 4.15, he's able to sympathize with us. He is the high priest who has suffered. He suffered both in his life of obedience, he never disobeyed the Father, and he suffered in his death on the cross. Actually, 2, 17 and 18 highlight that part of Jesus' suffering, that part of Jesus' temptation. Oh, Jesus was tempted. Jesus was tempted in the garden when he said, Father, is there any other way? He is sweating blood. Is there any other way? Is there any other cup? He was tempted. And then he says, not my will, but your will. Thank God for that obedience. That's the obedience that Adam faltered in his garden. That's the obedience that we falter in often. Jesus was tempted in that moment, and he obeyed the Father. And then he suffered. He bore the wrath of God, naked, humiliated, shamed on the cross. Forget the physical suffering. I can't imagine hanging for six hours and finally dying of asphyxiation after being beaten to an inch of my life, but it's the wrath of God. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because Jesus suffered as a man, fully God, fully man. He was tempted as a man. He's able to sympathize with us. Oh, this is the basis of my confidence. This is the one who holds on to me when I hold on to the confession of who he is. See, this word sympathize, if you could show chapter 4, verse 15 again. This word sympathize in 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. It, it conveys, there's this range of meaning that conveys this picture of a mother's heart for her children. There's a tenderness there. It, it includes the element of active help. Listen, Christian, it, if your confidence with God is evaporating because of persistent sin, maybe it's in the area of sexual purity, allow this truth, allow the one who holds on to you 
to give you fresh confidence to hold on to him. He suffered for that. He died for that, Christian. He's not this distant high priest, but he's one who is with us, holding fast to us. This is what enables us to hold fast to him. This is what gives us confidence to draw near to God even when we sin. I'll show you your belief in the gospel of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. He took our sin. When I see what you do when you sin, do you run from God or toward God? I know it's counterintuitive, but it's gospel because it's based on Christ. As Christians, we have a merciful and faithful high priest who helps us by granting us access to God's throne of grace where with confidence we approach that throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Point two, with confidence, brothers and sisters, with confidence, draw near to God to receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. With confidence. Did you notice that? How? With confidence. Why? Because of the one, the great high priest, the son of God, who's seated at the right hand of the Father, whose blood covers, whose, whose blood, whose body makes a way because I'm coming based on him, not me. With confidence, draw near to God to receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Verse 16, church, it's the climax Verse 16 is the conclusion of our text. Verse 16 is the reason. It's the implication. It's the blessing of holding fast to our confession so that we might draw near to God with confidence. Verse 16, look at it with me. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help our time of need. Would you note the repetition of that phrase, let us? Can we throw verse 14 back up there, 414? See it in 14? Let us hold fast our confession. Jump back down to 16. Let us then with confidence. Both of those phrases point back to since then. Throw uh, verse 14 back up again. Since then. See that? Since then. Let us hold fast our confession. Since then, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Since then, here is the gospel indicative foundation. Now, hold fast the confession. Hold fast to the one who holds fast to you. And now draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. If you're not a Christian, the throne of grace is for you a throne of judgment because you are in your sins. And I say this with the utmost of respect an appeal. There is a way. There's a way that becomes a throne of grace. It's through the blood of Jesus. And you repenting and believing in him. And I pray that happened before the service is over. But for you, Christian, it's a throne of grace because we have this great high priest who grants us access. Let us draw near with confidence, Christian. Let us approach the plate, not wondering if I'm going to get a hit, but knowing I'm going to get a hit. God doesn't lie. We draw near with confidence. 
in Jesus Christ, our great high priest, who has removed the sin that keeps us from approaching God's throne. Jesus turns God's throne of judgment, Christian, into a throne of grace through his high priestly sacrifice and intercession for us. Do you functionally believe that? See, this word confidence, if we can display verse 15 again, 16, excuse me. Let us then with confidence that that. That word in the original language, again, has a range of meaning. They've chosen to translate it confidence here, and rightly so. But this range of meaning includes open speaking, open speaking, born of confidence in God, stoked by trust in Jesus, our great high priest. The range of meaning, a permissible range of meaning here. Actually, it's not just permissible. I think it's big time there. Confidence means open speaking born of confidence in God, stoked by trust in Jesus, our great high priest. See, it includes speaking plainly and honestly before God without fear of shame or punishment. Why? Because we trust Jesus, our great high priest. We speak freely because God has granted us the permission to speak freely. I was in the military. I was an officer in the army. I was a field artillery officer got out as a captain, and you would salute, sir, permission to speak. (laughs) He didn't give you permission to speak. You kept quiet. God gives us permission to speak, Christian. And if you read the Psalms, and if you read the Psalms of lament, there are times the psalmist is speaking quite openly, quite frankly, and you would even say maybe even disrespectfully. But God's not nervous about that because he knows what we're thinking anyways. So go ahead and speak it to him. Cry out to him. Tell them that your faith is evaporated. Tell them your confidence is evaporated. Tell them you hate the sin, but you love the sin. You, get crazy with God. Get crazy with God. I'm, I'm already crazy, so might as well get crazy with them, you know? It's who I am. I'm crazy. That's why I've survived here in Miami all these years. You have to be a little crazy. See, I, I, felt, like, I felt like this was the point for Grace Church as I prayed for you. See, I I think what he's talking about here is prayer. I I believe that. This is where I'm going to hold this openly. You talk to your pastors later about it. But I I think I agree with P.T. O'Brien and his commentary. I think he's talking about prayer. I think he's saying to these first century Christians, you can pray to God a lot of stuff and even like, Cry out to God and say, why God? And what's going on, God? You know, some of these people had their homes taken from them because they were Christians. They were under tremendous pressure, kind of like double pressure from from Jews who had not become Christians yet. They were persecuting them for leaving Judaism and from the Roman Empire that was increasingly coming against Christians. Their homes had been taken. They'd been thrown into prison. And they, they were like, God, what's going on here? I think he's talking about prayer. P.T. O'Brien commenting on this verse on the screen. The challenge for the listeners here in 416 is to persistent, confident prayer. Based on Jesus' high priestly work that leads to an opening of the heavenly sanctuary, because Jesus, that's where he's at, for men and women in a new way by his blood, this direct approach to God is an ongoing and regular expression of the definitive drawing near to. That's what I think the drawing near to means. It means many things, but church, I think this morning, God wants to emphasize to you prayer, which what's cool is you guys are already strong in it. He wants to strengthen it even more. And regular expression of the definitive drawing near to. It is also the means by which this living relationship is sustained. 
you're not a Christian, the Bible teaches us that we're dead in our trespasses. We are dead to God. Jesus came to die, to take our death, to rise from the dead. And then when Jesus ascended into the heavens, passed through the heavens with the Father and the Son on the day of Pentecost, poured out God the Holy Spirit, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that we might become alive. So we have this living relationship. We didn't make it alive. I didn't forge it. When you're dead, you're dead. If you have a cat and the cat's dead because it got run over by a car, you can call it all day long and it will not jump up and respond to you. Sorry if you're a cat lover. Sorry. But if suddenly life comes back into the cat, you call the cat, the cat comes, right? We were dead. You can call dead people all day. They're not going to wake up. But God gives us life. So the onus is on him. He's the one that initiated it. But it is a living relationship now that is sustained in prayer. So my question is to you is, do you have a living relationship with the Lord? See, we draw near to God in prayer through Jesus Christ, our great high priest, to receive help in our time of need. And this is the punchline here. Back to verse 16. Here's the takeaway. It is prayer, but in verse 16, if we can display that, it is to find help in our time of need. Do you see that? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Why? That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Of need. Now, without reducing these two words unnecessarily, I don't want to be reductionistic, but it can help when we simplify sometimes. Mercy and grace are big words. They mean a lot of things. Let me just give you some handles, and you can pursue these more later. I think mercy is pointing back to 2, 17, and 18. Whoever's doing the slides, I told you you'd get a workout this morning, all right? So you're getting one. Throw 217 back up there. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful. You see that word merciful and faithful high priest? All right, back to 416. I think what he's talking about there to receive mercy is this idea of the mercy that we see in 217 and 18 where Jesus takes our sin, the propitiation for our sins. So P.T. O'Brien says it this way. I don't have the quote for you on the screen, but he says this way. Mercy may focus on the assurance that past transgressions have been dealt with. So I confidently come to the throne of grace where I receive mercy. So the very thing that would keep me from God is dealt with in Christ and his sacrifice on the cross so I can come to God. I, I need mercy. If you're wrestling with sin, you need mercy. If you did something last night, maybe this morning, and you're ashamed of yourself, you can't tell anybody. Nobody even knows you need mercy. Mercy, mercy. Our God is a merciful God. And then grace, in 2.16, that find grace, I think that grace is dealing more with, okay, I need now the giftings and the power and the strength to deal with all that's going to come before me as I walk in the mission of making a disciple, being a disciple and making disciples, the mission of preaching the gospel and living the gospel together as a church, the trials and temptations and tribulations of living in this fallen world. P.T. O'Brien would say, say it this way, grace may point to inner strengthening to endure testing. So mercy may, may focus on assurance that past transgressions have been dealt with, and grace may point to inner strengthening to endure testing. See, here's the idea. 
God gives us mercy and grace. They are available. They are available at his throne of grace. And we come confidently because of what Jesus has done for us. We hold fast to the confession of faith. That confession of faith, the one who holds fast onto us, we hold fast to. That confession of faith then delivers us to a bold, confident approach to the throne of grace where we we receive mercy and we, we find grace to help in our time of need. Jesus is our great high priest and he knows how to help us and when to help us and he alone has the power to help us. So let me repeat that and then I'm going to make an appeal and then we're going to pursue God this morning together. But let me say that last statement. I think that's an important statement for some of you. Jesus is our great high priest. He knows how to help us. You may be doubting that. He really does. He knows when to help us. He does. We're not going to drown. And he alone has the power to help us. So here's the appeal, church. I'm going to speak to Christians first, then I'll speak to non-Christians. To the Christian. For those whose confidence in God is waning because you are losing hold on your confession of faith. Jesus, the strong Son of God, who is seated at the right hand of God right now at the throne of grace, intercedes for you right now. He is renewing your confidence in God as your great high priest. In a moment, we're going to pursue, seek him, worship in song. There may be others of you whose confidence in drawing near to God is growing dim due to persistent sin, maybe even the sin that they spoke of earlier with this special meeting that's coming. Jesus, your great high priest, has made a way for you to approach God to to the throne of grace that you would receive mercy for those sins. Jesus died for those sins. And then the grace to say no to ungodliness and to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life in Christ Jesus. Listen, brothers and sisters, Jesus, he sympathizes. He knows what it is to be tempted without sin. He, was, he never sinned. The rest of us sin. He suffered to give you confidence to draw near to God. There's hope for renewed confidence in Jesus, our great high priest, who has made a way for you to approach God confidently to find that mercy and grace. And, and there may be some of you who are wondering, but does God even know what I need? He seems so distant. This seems so unexpected, this trial, this temptation, this test. Yes, he does. And and if you're not a Christian, I'm going to start talking to you here. God, our God is not, he's not a mischievous deity that plays around with our emotions. He loves us. He's the one that died for us. And he knows what you're going through. He knows how to help you. If you're feeling helpless, he is here to help you this morning. Please believe that Jesus knows your suffering, not from a distant distance, but up close, experientially. He knows how to help you, when to help you, and he's the only one that has the power to help you. And Christians, finally, those who have grown weary in prayer, Jesus is the exalted one, the Son of God, at the right hand of the Father. He knows what you're going through. Pray. He will teach you to pray. The Spirit teaches us how to pray when we don't know how to pray. And pray in his name to the Father who hears. And non-Christian, for those who think that God is somehow distant, uncaring, and unfeeling, I'm here to tell you that is not true. That is slandering God. 
The truth is that God is with his people in Jesus Christ. This is what we just celebrated during the Christmas season. He is God with us, Emmanuel. Jesus was born to suffer and die for his people, rise from the dead, ascend into heaven. He lives and rules and reigns. He knows your suffering. He's the only one who can truly help. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.